Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream and you The changing world and the changing times The things that we can all do to live a better life If times get tough Or even if they don't dictate it It's almost always the case during my 50 mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today's a little bit different. We're doing something we've never done before. We're doing what's going to be Webcam Tuesday. Now, this is actually Monday, uh, the 8th of June. This is show, I think, 215. Uh, but we're going to put the video of this show up tomorrow if you're listening to it on the day that it was published. And the reason we're doing this is my son is actually coming on board with my company as an unpaid intern two days a week. For you young people out there that are looking for a start, let me say that again. It's an unpaid intern goal being to learn. So he's operating the camera, or at least he's keeping it from flying off the dash while I zoom in and out of cars. And we thought this would be cool because you could actually see what it's like when I podcast. Today's subject is going to be, are there any advantages for the survivalist in suburbia or in urban America? Um, We often hear about bugging out, going to remote locations, things like that. But, you know, what do you do if you're in the urban area? And we're not going to talk so much about what you do today, but we're going to talk about some inherent advantages. Uh, I think the suburbs get a bad rap. I know that it's not where I would prefer to be, uh, but all in all, there are some real advantages for the suburbanite. Before that, let's get on with uh, today's house cleaning. So on with the house cleaning... um First of all, check out our sponsors. Our sponsor of today is Safe Castle LLC. They're a new sponsor came on board last week. Uh, you'll see their banner in the right-hand margin of our site, and uh, you can learn a lot more about them there. Uh, next thing, if you think you get more than 25 cents in value out of the Survival Podcast, consider joining the Member Support Brigade, and uh, you can support the show with a contribution of $5 a month or $50 a year and get exclusive content only available to members. And on on that note, if you didn't get the email update because your spam filter ate it, I did publish uh, about two weeks ago's uh, videos uh, this week, last week, and uh, they are up, and it's basically a tour of our garden. We did shoot some video this week, just haven't got it edited and uploaded yet. Uh, let's wrap the house cleaning there since we're doing a special show today and uh, get on with the show. So, you know... You're sitting in suburbia, and what gave me the idea to do this is one I've had a lot of people ask me, Jack, can you do a show on urban survival? And uh, that seems like it has some advantages and things that we should probably look at, and uh, I want to put a show together on that as well. But the other side, I read an article recently by a guy named James something or another. I think James is full of shit in a lot of ways. James uh, talks about his neighbors that shot at each other all the time. The other guy was a meth dealer when they lived out in the country, and he moved to the city, and it was so much better. And I think there's probably some truth to what he dealt with with rednecks out in the country, Um, but overall, I think that uh, he was exaggerating a little bit for the artistry of the, the, you know, to put some humor into an article, which I think was a mistake because it's going to make a lot of people not take it as seriously. But he did make a good case for how if we have kind of a shit hit the fan scenario that's not a complete total breakdown, but kind of that winding down, there's shortages, but we're not out that city life might actually have some real advantages. So that was one. And then the other one, I think it was at the Survival Spot blog, and I think that's the blog I was at, but they were running a poll, and it said, where do you live? And the majority of people that read that blog, which I have to all believe are suburb, you know, um, survival-minded individuals, the majority lived 
Um, I guess that's no big deal. A majority of them lived uh, in suburbia. So what that tells me is a lot of people that listen to this show, just like I do, live in the suburbs. Now, you might have a bug-out location, but you have a primary location there. So what does this mean to us, and what kind of advantages are there? Well... One of the big advantages is you have a lot more people to work with if something goes wrong, assuming that you can build a community. In other words, yeah, there's there's five families that live behind the gate at my bug out location. And they're all good people and we've all talked to each other and we all know each other. And I gotta say I know them better than most of the people in my suburban area where I live here in Arlington. But uh I gotta tell you as well that there's only a limited body count up there, and some of them are some older folks and would have limited capabilities if we actually needed, you know, sweat work or, 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 or tactical work of any kind like that. Where in our suburban area, if we could put together, you know, maybe like I said last week, starting with a neighborhood watch, there's a lot of body count there. And that body count can go against you. And those of you that are thinking, whoa, 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 Jack's flipped his lid, you know, he's not thinking about all the negative sides. I'm going to give you some of the disadvantages at the end to balance this out. But just think about these for a while, because if you live in suburbia, what are you going to do? Are you going to just uh, head off to the campgrounds if you don't have a BOL? Alright, another one is efficiency of distribution. If we get to a point where we're having food shortages, we're not out. They're just shortages. The price has gone up, things like that. And you are a company distributing food. Where are you going to decide to send that next shipment? To a place with a half a million people that will buy it up overnight? Or a place with 5,000 people where they can produce some of their own food and they're less likely to buy as much of it and some of it may still go to waste? Or in any type of situation where there's a shortage of any commodity, generally the people in the cities and the suburban areas get first crack at it. Now, that's not to say that there's there's no disadvantages there as well, but you do have a certain level of buying power as a unit, as a community. So it's something else to think about. I guess another one to think about is, is that overall economic power? Again, that, that goes back to the same type of thing with if you have to make a decision, where am I going to send this stuff? Where's this stuff going to go to? Uh, you're probably going to send it to a place where you get guaranteed that you're going to get a return of investment. And you know, this is something that came out of that article that actually made a lot of sense to me in spite of some of his nonsense, uh, was that the, the people in the urban area, or not the urban areas, the rural areas, initially did a lot better in the Great Depression than those in the cities because they could feed themselves. But as the Depression lasted more than a couple of years, they started to have machinery break down, started to have a hard time getting a hold of fuel, uh, getting things to repair, broken machinery, things like that. The people in the cities started to actually fare a little bit better than the farmers because the people in the cities had that collective economic power that was able to continue to bring goods, services, and materials uh, into the uh, into the cities long after uh, long after they stopped really being shipped out into the country. You know, another one to look at is. Uh, Priority of, of, of disruption or priority of outage, and what I mean by that is, let's say that you are 
the power company, electrical company, and you have a group in a city of 25,000 people without power. And then going off into another direction, there's a group of rural people, and you have about 500 people without power. You have limited ability to restore power right now. There's only so much you can do. You only have so many crews that are working 24-7. Who are you going to send your repair crews out? to repair for first. Well, you're going to send them out for the the, the 20 plus thousand, right? I mean, that makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't you? Um, And those 500 people, you're going to feel bad for them, but you know what? They're just going to have to wait. And this is the same thing if we start getting into, like, well, what's FEMA going to do? What, what, What are all the emergency disaster people going to do? In any situation where it's not a total national, nationwide, or global shit hit the fan, any uh, rescue group, any organization that's coming from a place of safety, moving to inside, and, and trying to render aid is going to have to prioritize based on the resources that they have. The first place that they're going to go is into the cities. Because in the cities, they have that higher population density. They know they can do more with less, and they have to pr- you know, prioritize. If you Star Trek fans would say that the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Right, And that is how you set priority when it comes uh, to a disaster scenario. Another thing is, I think some survivors get kind of paranoid. They put on that foil hat, hunker down in the bunker, and worry that you know the state is going to come get me. The FEMA people are going to come get me. And the last people that they're looking for, for help from, are the police department and the police forces. Well, guess what, folks? There's a lot of places where, boy, you really wish there was a few police officers around. Um... You know, Hurricane Katrina is a perfect example. If we would have had a uh, a force like the Dallas Police Force uh, with the Dallas SWAT team and then supported by all the other police forces that exist in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and, of course, you know, Fort Worth, Arlington, Grand Prairie, uh, Carrollton, Farmers Branch, Louisville, all these cities that are around here, this huge metroplex. If we had a problem in downtown Dallas and the police forces could call on each other and rally there, there would be a, a huge equilibrium especially if it's a point where we're going to have to bring in the National Guard. Well, it takes time for those guys to get deployed into the area. The governor has to do it or the president has to get involved, depending on what goes on. We saw, you know, really all you need is the governor, but apparently the impotent governor of Louisiana didn't understand that he was the commander-in-chief of the National Guard. So a large police force and a large civil force, for that matter, can be a real advantage for the suburbanite when you have things start to break down. Don't worry if you're you're thinking about, but what if? I'm going to give you the other side. I know how some of you guys get with your emails. It's just, uh, it's, it's really amazing. Let's think about uh, something I think that gets really left out. And that is, you know, up in Arkansas, if for some reason I couldn't run my vehicles for a few days, uh, it would be okay. we got stuff there to eat and all. But if it went into a long-term period, especially if it wasn't a period that, like, I couldn't run my vehicles because there was no fuel, but because economically, for some reason, I just couldn't um, afford gasoline, and I really needed to hunker down and spend as little as possible, I'd be in a world of hurt. It would be, uh, I'd say it's about seven miles to town. Very rough, rugged roads up and down hills for the first several miles until I get to the main road. And, uh, 
It, it wouldn't be something I could do on a bicycle or, or anything like that. Certainly, you know, I could do it on foot, but I really wouldn't want to. Uh, it would be tough, especially to bring very much back with me. If we had that situation here in Arlington, the things that I do need to go out and procure are all within biking and walking distance quite easily. In fact, I could get to everything from restaurants to grocery stores, you name it, on a bicycle in five minutes or less. And there is that advantage in suburbia that you have those services closer to you. Now, again, if those services break down, does it matter? No, it doesn't matter anymore because now they're not there. But in most instances, except for the catastrophic, they'll stay together. Remember always, when you do your disaster planning, use order of probability of disaster in your planning. And the most likely disaster we're all likely, likely to have, of course, ourselves. Just us, individual, family-level disaster. A loved one gets killed or severely injured. Someone gets stricken with disease. Uh, we have a layoff. We have a personal economic collapse for whatever reason. And both spouses lose their job. Company tanks, and we're dumb, and we have all our money in our 401k, also in company stock. I mean, there's so many things like this uh, that can happen. And these are the things to plan for first. Well, a suburbanite definitely has the advantage in that situation. And if you want to choose to live that less dependent lifestyle and use gasoline less and, and do all those things, not because we're trying to save the planet because global warming is going to kill us and the polar bears are going to die because they're going to float on an iceberg. And no one tells you the freaking polar bear swims miles offshore and that polar bear on the iceberg was there because he wanted to be. He was probably looking for a seal to kill. And if you came by, he'd kill you. But I digress from that. If you just want to do it for independence, it's much easier to do in a town or a city where everything has that geographic range that's fairly easy to access. Let's look at just a completely different scenario. Let's say for some reason we're out of water. You know, the, the water system stops pumping. One thing about suburban America, we love our swimming pools. There's some swimming pools everywhere. Is it the greatest water in the world? No. But if it's been taken care of, it's been treated with chlorine, it's been treated with baquacil, whatever, you can drink it with a limited amount of preparation, quick boil to boil off the chlorine and the chemicals. It definitely can be used to flush toilets. It could definitely be used to wash your hands, wash your face, take a bath, you name it. There's a huge amount of reserve water stored up in suburban America's swimming pools. And in a short-term disaster where we know there's an end to it, people don't tend to like start rioting and tearing houses apart in their own freaking neighborhoods. Now, we actually have a first or two in my neighborhood I keep a real close eye on, but I think most of the people would say, this is where I live, this is my home. I want to take care of it, I want to take care of my neighbors. And with a little bit of reaching out, things like leveraging other people's assets, and, you know, swimming pools just happen to be one of them that can be leveraged. Um, that... That's some of the advantages. I guess there's some more. Let's address some of the disadvantages because there's some real disadvantages in a large-scale, we had a little camera glitch there, a large-scale catastrophic event um, to, uh, to live in suburbia. One is that same population density. That population density that is so valuable when we're not out but we're just low on resources, um, 
it's kind of gone if everything breaks down. If everything breaks down to nothing and the, and the, the stores have no food on the shelves, you can't even go loot the freaking stores. The police have decided that it's more important for them to take care of their families than to take care of you, and who can fault them for it? National Guard's not here, or they're more a part of the problem than the solution. We're out of food and people are starving. Living in that high population density with most people not being prepared is very, very dangerous. Anything that you have is a target for thieves and can be taken away from you. But you have to balance, again, what's most probable. A short-term food shortage, a we don't quite have as much as we want so we're living on bread and water, or there's no food at all and people are out in the streets stoning rats to eat them. First one's more likely. So, again, the suburbanite retains some advantage, but there's definitely uh, some other things to be looked at there. Now, this is my big one. Even taking into account probabilities and taking into account the overall writing theme of my show, living a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Now, that's a high cost of living. And I'm not so much talking about goods and services. I'm talking about how much it costs to just live there from a taxation standpoint. Most cities have taxes that are added to gasoline. They have taxes that are added to all types of things that you buy. There's these little hidden taxes that you never see. A lot of them are what you would call sin taxes, additional taxes on cigarettes, alcohol, gasoline, things like that. Because remember, you know, using your car and running gasoline is just as evil, just as evil as smoking cigarettes on top of your baby. Remember that, because you're killing the polar bears. Um, so that's... That's another thing to look at, but the big one, the really big one is property taxes. If we paid off our house in full in Arlington right now, we would still pay a little tiny bit over $300 a month just to pay the school taxes, the county taxes, the, the, the all the taxes that go together on our property. $3,000 or $3,600 and some change a year. We pay in taxes. My rural place up in Arkansas, forget about the whole bug out location part of it. $316 a year. $316 a year, or roughly the same amount a month. And we had a catastrophic camera failure there, folks, but uh, Matt's rectifying that now. <laughs> ah, gorilla podcasting at its best. So that's the big one. How much is it going to cost you to just exist? You know, how much is the government still going to intrude into your life with that deep hand reaching into your pockets and pulling money out? That's a much higher cost in suburbia today than anywhere else. On that same note, land is expensive in the cities. Even if you want just a half acre lot, most suburban lots today are averaging about a tenth of an acre. Uh, in some areas where you're lucky, you're getting maybe you know a fifth of an acre. It, to me, if you really want some space and you want to be able to really shape your lot and your lawn and you want to do a lot of the things that we talk about on the show, you can do it with a half an acre. It's, it, it gets harder as you descend from there. We've got roughly just under a third of an acre, and I have to admit we're able to do a lot with that, but I sure wish I had another you know, two-tenths of an acre here. Well, a lot like that in most suburban areas is very, very expensive. Of course, it also jacks up your tax bill. Where you can go out and buy land out in rural 
Arkansas, rural Missouri, places like that, for in the neighborhood of two to three thousand dollars an acre, and some for even less. And if you're willing to kind of make a go of it in the desert, there's land out in West Texas and New Mexico that's selling for a hundred dollars an acre. You know, so you could go out there with uh, two thousand dollars and buy twenty acres, and with some really clever permaculture techniques, water harvesting techniques, especially if it's a place where there is the potential to put a well in or, or get a hold of some, some township water or something like that, uh, you really have the opportunity to terraform that into something that's pretty cool for not a lot of money. So there's, you know, there's the other side of that coin. Now, that population density comes back and bites you as well with a disadvantage. If you're living in suburbia, you're a much easier target. And what I mean by that is... Think about this. If you want to invade the Spearco bug out location in Arkansas to steal our stuff, whatever it may be, because you don't have anything, first you've got to go past all these people in downtown Hot Springs and completely loot them out before you risk going off the beaten path. Then you have to take a road to another road that if you didn't know, you would look at it and go, there probably ain't anything back there. Then you got to deal with all the people all the way up the side of the mountain that are all armed. I mean, I guarantee you there ain't nobody out there that ain't armed. And in that situation, would all be kind of hyper-vigilant to what the hell's going on and what the hell are you doing back here. And that's the case when it's normal. My uh, my son-in-law, what's he, my nephew-in-law, I guess he is, my niece's husband, uh, we rented the place to them for a few years. He rode his motorcycle down the road and kind of just went off a little bit into what was really a road. It wasn't even really the guy's driveway. And the guy was a, is actually a volunteer hot spring sheriff, and the guy held him and wouldn't let him go until his wife came down with his ID because he had to just be running around on a dirt bike out there without ID. Now, if that's the way those people are during a good time, how are they going to be if there's really a threat out there? Then you got to get all the way up there and you get to a gate with a sign that says, I will shoot you if you come on the other side of it. And I actually mean to make good on that threat if you should choose um, to, uh, to cross the gate unannounced and uninvited. So I'm a less, tar- less of a target than some guy sitting in suburbia. The other side, though, is remember that body count, that suburban group, if they have any level of organization whatsoever, have a lot of people with a vested interest in keeping a lid on in their areas. Now, this was where you really start to see a difference between places like, oh, I don't know, you know, Hartford, Connecticut suburbs and Dallas, Texas suburbs. I'll bet you 50% or more of the households in my suburb have a gun of at least some sort, shape, form, or kind. I bet you Hartford, Connecticut, yeah, not so much. Bunch of, you know, whiny liberal guys. We don't need, what do you need a gun for? Well, you're about to find out when we have a problem and you have no way to defend yourself. So that population density kind of kicks back in as an advantage on the other side. And the same thing that makes you an easy target, and that is just a whole lot of people in one area. So if you're a looter and you hit that area, you have a lot of stuff you can get even if only everybody has a little bit. But you have a lot bigger force of people that have to defend themselves. Everything in life is a trade-off, folks. Please remember that. Um, The other disadvantage, though, and this is the big disadvantage, and this is what makes, in my opinion, the suburbs and the urban parts of America dangerous. Most people aren't prepared. They're not even a little bit prepared. They don't have one box of food that would take them through a month to two months. That is so easy and cheap to do. We figured out that for less than 50 bucks, you could go to the grocery store and buy enough stuff that stores for at least a year to put away food for a family of four for a full month. 
Okay? I mean, if you have a month sustainability at every house in a neighborhood, things are going to stay together a lot better than they are if everybody's sitting there with just-in-time delivery like most of the stores, being a microcosm of the distribution system. So if you can get people to prepare, there's a lot of advantages to that strength in numbers. The disadvantages, most people aren't prepared, they're not listening, they're not paying attention, they're not going to listen, they're not going to pay attention, so they're not going to get prepared. But if you can get maybe 10% of a neighborhood to start putting stuff together and being prepared, that 10% has a real good shot of holding the other 90% together, assuming basic services are still available. And remember again, what's the probability? What's most likely to happen? The real disadvantage, all is lost after 48 hours of a complete breakdown. This has been proven over and over and over by our own government. Back when we were fighting uh, the Cold War, right, fighting the Cold War, which was complete nonsense, and and I don't really know how you fight a war that you're not fighting, but we were told we were at war with the Soviets and their empire. And um, we had a real potential for global thermal nuclear war to strike, and our government wanted to know, well, what would happen? What would happen if we didn't launch all the nukes, but we launched a bunch of the nukes? And uh, as a society, we just kind of fell apart, and the police weren't able to get out and do their job, and the grocery stores were empty. How long would it take for complete total chaos to ensue. Everything they tested worked out if you took the cops away, you took the food away, 48 hours. Within 24, people were starting to panic, People, but other people were trying to hold it together. With just two days, you have a complete total meltdown of society. And that's the big problem. It's because people aren't prepared. But what does that mean to you if you live in the suburbs and that's where you are for now? It means it's more important than you can imagine to start reaching out to the people around you and saying, hey, maybe we should pay just a little bit of attention to what is going on and try to sort things out amongst ourselves. Maybe it's a good idea to take that first step of putting a neighborhood watch together. I think that's one of the great programs that's out there and available to people to try to get you know a neighborhood involved in a preparedness mindset. It's a very soft entry. You'll get a lot of people tell you, I don't want to do it, but you're not going to get people angry, upset, or thinking you're crazy because you think it would be a good idea to have a neighborhood watch. People like to live in communities with a neighborhood watch. If you have a good, solid neighborhood watch program, it raises the property value of the entire neighborhood, assuming it's not because it's absolutely necessary, right? Assuming it's just a proactive stance to keep a good neighborhood nice. So if you reach out and do that and start with that, you'll probably be able to find that 10% of your neighborhood that can be brought on board with some preparedness and knowing and sharing, get some gardening, get some permaculture going on in the neighborhood, make the neighborhood more self-sufficient, and then all of the advantages start to outweigh the disadvantages in all but the complete doomsday scenario. And in that case, we may all be kind of screwed anyway. So again, remember, focus on the probabilities first, folks. Get those things sorted out. If you live in the suburbs, if you live even in kind of the outskirts of the suburbs, but still in a neighborhood environment, realize there are some advantages. Max
maximize the, maximize them and make the most of them. And remember, where you live is a highly personal choice. I want to live out in the country. Some people actually like towns. They like cities. They like this crap that's all around me that maybe you can see some of it in the background right now. All these big trucks and stuff. I hate it. That's what I want to get out of eventually. Uh, but for you, maybe you want to be there. And there are some good things about it. So focus on those. And we'll wrap this one up. I do want to throw one more thing out to you guys. Remember, I'm trying to do that special show on the 20th. All you have to do is dial 866-65-THINK. Tell me what the last year has been like for you, how you've improved your preparedness, your survival uh, status, everything else. Tell me what the Survival Podcast has meant to your life over that year because the show on the 20th of June is going to be all about you. I'm just going to intro and exit it. And the whole thing is going to be people. I've got some great ones already. A couple of them were really kind of emotional for me to listen to. How big a deal that this stuff's been to people. So please help me out with that project. This has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. You can scream. And you can holler. It really doesn't matter. Because it all gets spent.